take your Bibles. Uh, we'll be going through 1 Peter, uh, verses 3 through 5 this morning. Um, and if you don't have a Bible or have able ability to get one on your phone to look at it, um, you can grab some of those black kind of pew Bibles in the back there. Um, and I believe it's on page 1023 in those. I'm going to begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It wasn't too long ago, too many years ago, when finalists of certain national singing competitions would end their long runs by, you know, thank you to mom and dad, thank you to all my friends for helping me and supporting me, and thank you to God. And now most people are much more likely to thank the universe for its good vibes or thank karma for letting them get what they worked for. But I think that that change is actually good for us because it's more honest. Before, when the average person thanked God, who really were they thanking? Wasn't it just some high in the sky, big, powerful being that gives to those he deems worthy? And the average person I don't think has dramatically changed what their beliefs are. Uh, they didn't wake up one day and decide to stop believing in the true God, <clears throat> excuse me, true God, and start believing in karma. They just stopped using that, quote, outdated idea of God to describe their real beliefs. Because the God they were thanking before was really just that same God who helps those who help themselves. And I don't know how many times I've heard that, that phrase, especially in North Dakota. You know, you work hard, you live ethically, and God keeps you healthy, right? You wake up early to tend the cattle, and God helps you by keeping the tornadoes from hitting your farmstead. It's a business agreement. Work hard and be a good person. When the going gets tough, get tough right back. And should some major disaster hit, well, that's what God is for. He's insurance for what insurance doesn't cover. But do good and receive good is not the promise of God. That is what we've come to call karma. And I'm glad people have stopped bringing God's name into it. So I'm going to say it plainly, because God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. 
Our God is not like the gods of the nations. He does not come to his people saying, work harder, do better, make an offering, do something for me, and then I will bless you. Our God is the Lord who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And when their enemies had them trapped between death by the sword of Pharaoh's army or drowning in the Red Sea, God said to them this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It is that God whom we praise. Not a generic deity, but as Peter says in the opening praise here, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at who takes action in these verses. It's God. He is exclusively the one. And his people are exclusively those who receive. It was God's great mercy. God caused us to be born again. God is keeping our inheritance for us. And it is by God's power that we are being guarded. And before we look at these words in more depth, can I just say how grateful that I am that Caleb has been mentoring me these last three years, especially in preaching. Because case in point, I thought I was going to get through verse 12 when I started preparing this sermon. Uh, But that would just leave me to gloss over these three verses. And it would fail to do any justice to the text. And it would rob you of seeing the glories that are here. So instead, I'm going to give these three verses the time they deserve. Because my goal in this sermon, is to slow down long enough to read and consider rather than just skim. Because some things are worth the extra time that we give them. You know, if you go and rake leaves, that's pretty easy. It doesn't take long. But in the end, what you end up with is a pile of leaves. But if you mine for gold, that's going to take a long time It's going to take a lot of effort, but in the end, that gold is worth it. So let's mine for gold in God's word today. By God's spirit, it's within our grasp, and there's no reason to work for less. So please look with me at these three verses, and let me preview what we're going to find here. Praise the God who worked so great a salvation for those who wait for him. And let's walk through this text to gain a better understanding. Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've already mentioned it in the introduction, but notice again who he's addressing. Peter is not giving praise to some generic God. Nor is Peter addressing God 
in the way that he would have grown up. You know, Peter could have said, Blessed be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or, blessed be the God of Israel. But instead, he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has shown us the way to the Father. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And just as we end our prayers in Jesus' name, so also is the whole of life done in Jesus' name. We can't come to God except through Jesus. We can't know God except through Jesus. And no one else knows God except those who know Jesus Christ. Because there is no God in heaven except the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is why we call him Father when we pray. Because Jesus has revealed God to us as his own Father. And when we come to God through Jesus Christ, God the Father is our Father too. Because we come clothed in Jesus' royal robes that he has so freely given us. And we receive the blessings of the firstborn Son of God. And it is not just Jesus who has given this to us, but rather it is according to the Father's great mercy, as it says. According to his great mercy. Now, hear and mark that well. Not according to our works, not according to what we deserve, not according to our parentage or our upbringing or our voting patterns, not according to anything in us, but only according to his great mercy. How can that change the way we live? I've kept a quote. As my phone's lock screen so I can see it often uh, for the last couple months because I really need to internalize it. I really need to know what's going on and understand it. And it's this, to have faith in Christ means to cease trying to win God's favor by one's own character. Because I'm always, it seems, falling back into that false notion that God loves me more when I feel like I've been a better Christian. And he loves me less when I've been worse. But that is not the gospel. That's the doctrine of devils. That's the world's hope. It feels like humility, but it only comes from pride. Because it says, I must do things to earn God's favor so that he'll love me more. But friends, what can we do for God? And that's why it's really pride and not humility. Because it assumes we can do things for God that he somehow will look at and think, wow, you've really exceeded my expectations. Here's a prize for that. You've earned it. But what could we possibly do for him? He is not indebted to anyone 
He gives to everyone life and breath and everything. And that doesn't even consider the fact that we are sinners. Because we owe him our very existence. We didn't choose to be born. But we owe him our salvation. We owe him everything twice over. Because in our sin, we don't deserve anything good. And yet, we have that false notion that God loves us more when we do better and loves us less when we do worse. And we look at ourselves and we ask the question, how can I be sure that God will continue to love me? We will never find an answer. Because nothing in you makes God love you. But he is more pleased with you than you can comprehend or conceive. And that sounds like a contradiction. There's nothing in me that makes God love me, and yet he loves me more than I could possibly understand. That sounds like a contradiction. Because our human way of loving only knows how to love what is already lovable. Now we look at something and we say, oh, isn't that lovely? We recognize that there's something worth loving. And so we love it. But that's not how God loves. God does not look for lovely things and then love them. No, he takes things that are wholly unlovable and by setting his love upon them, makes them lovely. Just as God created the world out of nothing, he didn't start with something and then make it. He just said, let there be light, and out of nothing there was light. In that same way, he doesn't start with something lovable and say, I'm going to love it. No, he takes that which is despised and rejected of the world, that which is corrupted by sin, and says, I am choosing to love it. I am choosing to love these people that have nothing lovely in themselves and are only sinners. And when he does that, when he sets his love upon us freely, he makes us lovely. He sanctifies us by his spirit. He conforms us to the image of his son. Just as the next line says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here I want you to see very specifically that we are born again, not first and foremost, through our belief in Jesus' resurrection. Rather, we are born again through the act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our belief that unites us to Jesus, but it is not our belief itself that makes us born again. It's our union with Jesus in his death that makes us dead to sin, and it's our union with Jesus in his resurrection that raises us to newness of life. And maybe it just seems like I'm splitting hairs, but let me suggest to you that this truth has real meaning for your daily life. 
Because when you are tempted, as I am, to think that your good character wins God's favor, and then you become distraught because you, like me, really don't have all that great a character, the next thing that we usually try to do is bargain with God and say, okay, I, I know my character isn't as great as it could be, but you know what? I really, I really believe strongly. My belief is strong, right? And then you put all your hope into making sure that your belief is strong enough, radical enough. But we are frail creatures. We can't go two seconds without failing at something. And surely our belief will waver in strength, sometimes stronger and sometimes weaker. So the good news for us is that we are born again not because our belief is strong enough, but because, you know, we are born again because Jesus is raised from the dead. Again, this is the God who works for those who wait for him. This is not the God who says, get yourself to a good place and then you can come to me. I'm reminded of a, a quote. I was reminded when I was preaching this in the first service. Um, it is not the strength of my faith in Jesus that saves me. It is the strength of my Jesus in whom I have faith. This is the God who out of his own good pleasure gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what do those words actually mean? I mean, Peter says these are all negatives, right? And, and even, they're even lyrical. In fact, in the original language, they rhyme. But consider, what in the world do we have that matches even one of these descriptors? Imperishable. Never to pass away. Never to lose freshness. Now, last Sunday, I bought you know, some strawberries from Walmart. You know, they looked really good, and they reminded me that the cold weather can't last forever. Because even in North Dakota, we grow strawberries too. Those, of course, weren't from, from here, but, you know. And then I put them in my fridge, and on Tuesday, I went to go eat them. Now, they were still edible, but they definitely weren't straight off the bush. How many light bulbs have you changed in your life? You know, how many gallons of milk have gone sour before you got to them? You know, we don't have a concept of imperishable. Not really. Because all we have around us is perishable. And so all we can say about imperishable is, it's not like that. It's not like anything we've ever experienced. What about undefiled? What hasn't been corrupted by our sin? Charles Spurgeon once quipped, 
If I should find the perfect church here on earth, I would be sure never to join it, because I would ruin it. You know, what, what could we describe as undefiled? Is there anything, any substance on the earth that you could pour into the sewer that would then make you think the sewer is clean enough to swim in? And yet our salvation is undefiled because it is undefilable. Did you know that the law of ancient Israel and really all of the ancient world was that if you had leprosy, a really contagious skin disease, you had to walk around shouting, unclean, unclean, so that everyone would know and they wouldn't run into you accidentally. And if a person who was considered clean touched a leper, they would automatically become unclean. This was also true if you touched a dead body or if you came too close to a woman whose issue of blood had not stopped. And I mention these specifically because these are exactly the people that Jesus went out of his way to touch and grow near to and heal. And not once did their uncleanness transfer over to him. But all of Jesus' cleanness and purity transferred over to them and healed them. What about unfading? Now, I may be a bit of a stick in the mud, but I think that the rise of 4K TVs and TVs of even better resolution are kind of silly. Um, because how am I supposed to benefit from 4K? I've been told that that's better resolution than real life. You know, I wear glasses. My eyes are fading. I'm 25, which means, you know, on average, I've got about five years to reach peak biological whateverness, and then everything is downhill from there. I said on average, so take that as you like. But you can find this sort of thing everywhere. You buy a car, and it loses value as you drive it away. If you seal your deck or paint your fence or shingle your roof, you've just reset the clock for when you have to do it again. But this salvation is not like this. It won't fade, not a billion, billion years into all eternity. But how is it that God ensures that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Because it's kept in heaven, guarded by God's power, prepared to be fully displayed. These are the next verses. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's out of Satan's reach to destroy. It's out of the world's reach to spoil. And it's out of our sin's reach to defile. And not only is this inheritance protected for you, but you are protected for it. God is guarding you through faith. 
He is keeping you in this faith that he has given you. And he strengthens your faith to remain so that you can inherit. And this salvation which is yours is ready. It's complete. There are no final touches that need to be added. God is not holding it back because he needs to finish up something. It's totally and finally completed. God has done the work once for all time in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is guaranteed, not because it is as good as done, but because it truly is done. Because our salvation is not itself a thing or a substance. It's not even a status. Our salvation, our inheritance, is Jesus himself. He's not only our Savior, he is our salvation too. Because Jesus is our life. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear also with him in glory. He is already, once for all, raised from the dead, seated on high at the right hand of God. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. So, what's the conclusion? What do, we, what do we do with all of this? We bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Peter does at the beginning of verse 3. Or as David does in the Psalms. Or as Paul does in many of his letters. God has blessed us by giving us so great a salvation. And so we bless him by turning ourselves back up to him in praise. Not giving him something he needs, but praising the God who has freely given to us in our need. Not because we deserve it, but because he delights to work for those who wait for him. Let us pray.